we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The only writing that remains in William Shakespeare's own penmanship is in his will. Specifically, the two words, by me, and five signatures spread throughout the document's pages. Each of the signatures are spelled differently, leading some historians to question if William Shakespeare could even spell his own name. And none of these signatures use a hyphen between the syllables shake and spear, the spelling found in the great writer's published works. If Shakespeare's will doesn't hyphenate his name, the fact that his plays do may hint at a surprising truth about one of the most celebrated oeuvres in history. In Elizabethan times, the hyphen was used to mark a pseudonym. Perhaps Shakespeare with a hyphen wasn't the same Shakespeare who couldn't spell his own name after all. But if William Shakespeare the man wasn't William Shakespeare the playwright, then who was? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second and final episode on Elizabethan-era writer William Shakespeare. He has gone down in history as the most popular playwright of all time, but not everyone is so sure he ever existed. Last week, we explored this remarkable figure's official life story from his humble beginnings in Stratford-upon-Avon to his wild success as a playwright and poet in London. 
But some strange aspects of this narrative leave skeptics unconvinced that William Shakespeare was really the same man of that name, born in Stratford-upon-Avon. Well, notably, they wonder how William of Stratford could have written such learned plays, considering he never received an education. But if William of Stratford didn't write Shakespeare's oeuvre, someone else must have. This week, we'll delve into some alternative theories about the person behind the pen. William Shakespeare of Stratford was born in Stratford-upon-Avon in 1564 to parents who were most likely illiterate. He would have been eligible to attend the local grammar school for free. There are, however, no records to prove that he did. What we know for sure is that Shakespeare left Stratford-upon-Avon to pursue an acting career in London, where he joined an acting troupe called the Lord Chamberlain's Men. He also started to write for this group. During his professional lifetime, Shakespeare wrote 37 plays, 154 sonnets, and two long narrative poems. The plays, which only occasionally had his name on them, were performed by the Lord Chamberlain's men and were favorites in the royal courts of both Queen Elizabeth I and King James I. This success provided well for William Shakespeare. He retired to Stratford-upon-Avon, a wealthy man, before dying on April 23, 1616, at over 50 years of age, a respectable enough lifespan in the 17th century. Despite Shakespeare's evident wealth, however, there's little evidence that he achieved corresponding notoriety. In fact, we only have one mention of him as a writer before his death in 1616. It was seven years after Shakespeare passed that his name and legacy were impressed on history when his friend and fellow playwright, Ben Jonson, wrote the introduction to Shakespeare's posthumous collection called The First Folio. At least that's how the official story goes. Questioning the authorship of Shakespeare's work is not a new sport. In fact, according to the Shakespeare Authorship Trust, conspiracy theories surrounding his identity go back 400 years. There have been dozens of books written on the subject, including Mark Twain's Is Shakespeare Dead, published in 1909. But if Shakespeare wasn't the author, who was? For the sake of clarity, we will refer to the man traditionally thought to be the author of Shakespeare's works as William of Stratford. We will refer to the writer of the plays, whoever he may be, as William Shakespeare. There have been countless conspiracies around William Shakespeare's identity. We will be focusing on the three that we find to be the most credible. Our first theory is that Shakespeare was just another name for Christopher Marlowe. Christopher Marlowe was a popular playwright of the Elizabethan era, second only to William Shakespeare. He was killed in 1593 during a fight regarding the payment of a bill. But the timing of his death is suspicious, as he was currently out on bail for a serious crime. Some theorists speculate that he faked his own death and continued writing using the name of an actor he knew, William Shakespeare. 
Our second and possibly most popular theory is that William Shakespeare was the pen name of Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. These theorists, who call themselves Oxfordians, claim that William Shakespeare's plays read like autobiographies of de Vere's life. The final theory is that multiple authors wrote works under the name William Shakespeare. This collective of authors was headed by Francis Bacon, a famous scientist and the leader of a literary society. Also in this literary society was Ben Jonson, the prominent poet and playwright who wrote the introduction to the first folio. In our last episode, we discussed the events of William of Stratford's life, his small-town childhood, lack of education, early marriage, and his career in London. Our first theory that William Shakespeare was just a pen name used by Christopher Marlowe points out some intriguing similarities between Marlowe and William of Stratford's upbringing. They were born within two months of each other, and Christopher's father was also named John. John Marlowe was a shoemaker, so both William of Stratford and Marlowe's fathers worked in leather. But that's where the similarities end. Unlike William of Stratford, we are certain that Marlowe had an education, and a good one at that. As a boy, Marlowe studied at King's School in Canterbury Cathedral, and in 1584 received a scholarship to Cambridge University. According to World of Marlowe by David Riggs, Marlowe would have endured 18-hour school days at Cambridge. His only day off from this grueling schedule was Sunday, but school wasn't the only thing eating up Marlowe's schedule. He was also a spy for Queen Elizabeth I. At least that's what some historians believe, based on a series of compelling clues. First, there are Marlowe's purchases at the Cambridge Buttery, or bar. We have records of the food and drink Marlowe bought, and there are large, unaccounted-for gaps during which he made no purchases. He seems to have left the school for long periods, with no explanation for his whereabouts. And when he was there, he spent unusually large sums of money on food and drinks. Marlowe, who was a scholarship student and the son of a shoemaker, seems to have come into a sudden fortune during his university years. According to Inventing Shakespeare by Robert U. Ayers, he was able to afford a portrait of himself in rather expensive-looking clothing at the time of his graduation. Even more unusual was the gossip Marlowe generated while he was in university. There were whispers that he was a secret Catholic and that his mysterious absences from university had to do with his religion. With a Protestant queen on the throne, it was dangerous for Cambridge to have any ties to Catholicism, so in response, the university threatened to withhold Marlowe's diploma. But this is where the story gets really interesting. According to Derek Flynn at the Irish Times, someone unexpected stepped in to help Christopher Marlowe, the Privy Council, the group that advised the Queen. The Privy Council told Cambridge that Marlowe's absences had nothing to do with religion, but were matters touching the benefits of his country. He was given his degree shortly after. A strange explanation if Marlowe was indeed a Catholic traitor. 
but their interference makes perfect sense if Marla was only pretending to be Catholic as part of an espionage mission. And the Privy Council's interference in Marlowe's life didn't end there. In 1592, he was arrested for counterfeiting, and the charges were dropped. Again, thanks to the Council. Historians believe that this counterfeit charge was also part of an espionage mission. During his lifetime, these suspicions weren't public knowledge. Instead, Marlowe was famous for something different. He was England's most beloved playwright. Marlowe wrote such works as Dr. Faustus, The Jew of Malta, and Edward II. He was best known for popularizing the blank verse style of writing, something that William Shakespeare also became famous for using. And as we discussed last week, Marlowe is widely recognized as William Shakespeare's biggest influence. In fact, some of William Shakespeare's early plays appear to be near copies of Marlowe's works, from structure to subject matter. According to historian John Bakeless, in seven of his plays, Shakespeare is clearly and probably consciously copying Marlowe, and in 11 other plays, there are faint traces and suggestions of Marlowe's influence. As a result of these similarities, as of 2016, the Oxford University Press has listed Marlowe as co-author on three of William Shakespeare's plays, parts one, two, and three of Henry VI. There's a complicated history to this attribution change. Marlowe and Shakespeare have long been considered direct rivals, not collaborators. However, Gary Taylor, one of the editors for the Oxford University Press, explained that rivals sometimes collaborate. More easily said than believed. Well, this subject is still up for debate in the scholarly community, but for now, the two names appear together on some editions of Henry VI. There is, however, no debating Marlowe's skill as a playwright. His plays, like William Shakespeare's, are still performed and studied today. Unfortunately, his life and his career were cut short tragically at the age of 29. At least, that's what most people think. The official story explains that on May 30th, 1593, Marlowe spent the day drinking in a lodging house in Deptford with three other men, Ingram Fraser, Nicholas Scaris, and Robert Poley. A fight broke out over the bill, and Ingram Fraser stabbed Marlowe just above his right eye. Marlowe died instantly and was buried in an unmarked grave. The coroner's report of the event was found by Leslie Hodson in 1925 and chronicled in his book, Death of Christopher Marlowe. According to the report, Ingram Fraser was speedily pardoned by Queen Elizabeth for the murder and back on the streets within four weeks. That raises a few questions about what actually happened and why the Queen saw fit to pardon the beloved writer's murderer. Coming up, we'll explore the possibility that Christopher Marlowe faked his death and continued writing under a pseudonym. Now back to the story. 
Christopher Marlowe, beloved British playwright, died in Deptford, England on May 30th, 1593, in a drunken knife fight. At least that's the official story, but there's another possibility. Marlowe faked his own death to save his life. Well, ten days before Marlowe's apparent murder, he was arrested for atheism. During the Elizabethan era, practicing anything besides the Protestant faith was punishable by death. However, it wasn't originally Marlowe that was accused of the crime. It was his roommate and possible lover, Thomas Kidd. Kidd was arrested for posting papers that denounced the Protestant faith. Authorities searched his and Marlowe's home and found pro-atheist papers. Under torture, Kidd claimed that the papers didn't belong to him. They were Marlowe's. Kidd died from the torture soon after he made his accusation. And then Marlowe was arrested. At first, he seemed to have another get-out-of-jail-free card up his sleeve. He was released, but these charges were too big to be dismissed completely. He was only released on bail, not fully pardoned. And it was just days later that his apparent murder took place. Let's take another look at Marlowe's dining companions that night. Nicholas Scaris and Robert Poley were suspected government agents who, a few years prior, had helped uncover a plot to assassinate the Queen. Ingram Freiser, Marlowe's supposed murderer, was employed by Sir Thomas Walsingham, who was a member of the royal court and the nephew of the Queen's chief spymaster. This certainly suggests that Marlowe's death was more than a bar brawl over a hotel bill. If Marlowe was a royal spy, as the evidence suggests, his superiors may have wanted to silence him before he was put under torture. Or they may have helped him disappear. Adding to the mystery, Marlowe's body was only seen and handled by the Queen's coroner, William Darby. There are no other witnesses to confirm whose body was actually buried. The day before Marlowe's apparent murder, one John Penry was executed only three miles away from the imminent brawl. Then, his body was mysteriously lost. It could theoretically be John Penry that rests in the unmarked grave that was dug for Christopher Marlowe. Just a fortnight after Marlowe's death, William Shakespeare published the first of his works that listed him as author, Venus and Adonis. Did Marlowe fake his own death and then continue to publish under the name William Shakespeare? The timeline does add up, and Marlowe was well enough acquainted with the actor William of Stratford in the London theater scene. He could have plausibly convinced William to give up his name, perhaps for a cut of the Shakespeare play's profits. Supporters of this idea have turned to the Shakespeare plays themselves for further evidence. Shakespeare had nothing less than an obsession with resurrection. Throughout his 37 plays, 18 characters are wrongly presumed dead. Marlowe may have been leaving us clues to his own fate. While his exact burial site is unknown... The commemorative plaque for Marlowe in Westminster Abbey may have left another clue right under our noses. 
Before his year of death, 1593, a question mark is engraved in the stone. But in order to believe that Christopher Marlowe is William Shakespeare, you must believe two other sub-theories. The first being that Marlowe, England's most prominent playwright at the time, was also a royal spy. That's something that was never insinuated during Marlowe's lifetime. Well, there are, however, strong, unexplained ties between Marlowe and Queen Elizabeth's Royal Privy Council. These ties make this first sub-theory reasonable. Um, But the second sub-theory, that Marlowe faked his own death to save himself from execution for atheism, is harder to believe. This is less convincing primarily because Marlowe was London's most popular playwright. There are no recorded sightings of Marlowe after his death, and no evidence of contemporary speculation that his burial was a hoax. It's unlikely that such a popular figure could just go on living without attracting even a whisper of gossip. However, it is compelling that the name William Shakespeare first appeared in a published work a fortnight after Marlowe's death. Compelling is about the highest honor you could give this theory. There's no shortage of circumstantial evidence, but no smoking gun to convince us that Marlowe is the true Shakespeare. Overall, we give this conspiracy a 3 out of 10. There are simply not enough hard facts that link Marlowe to Shakespeare's works. Our next theory involves more facts and, as hard as it is to believe, more drama. This theory argues that Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, used William Shakespeare as his pen name. As of 2019, De Vere is one of the most popular candidates for the title of William Shakespeare amongst conspiracy theorists. Those that back De Vere as the true Shakespeare call themselves Oxfordians. Oxfordians argue that Shakespeare's plays are direct autobiographies of De Vere's life, and that De Vere simply paid William of Stratford for the use of his name. De Vere was all but forgotten to the general public until J. Thomas Looney named him as the true Shakespeare in his 1920 book, Shakespeare Identified. To better understand this theory, it's important to understand who De Vere was. The title Earl of Oxford started in 1066 when William the Conqueror reigned. This made Oxford the longest line of earls in the royal court. Edward de Vere was born into this family on April 12, 1550. The birth of a son gave his father John de Vere, 16th Earl of Oxford, an heir to carry on the family name. John de Vere owned around 300 castles and mansions throughout England. Edward de Vere was given private tutors to ensure an education fit for a king, as his royal ranking wouldn't be far from it. While earls don't usually rank so high in court, the history of the family made them a special case. De Vere's private tutoring stands in stark contrast to the childhood of William of Stratford, who may have never attended a school or even known how to spell his own name. De Vere's course load, meanwhile, was intense, to say the least. His first tutor was Sir Thomas Smith, Sir Smith's library was inventoried at over 400 books written in Latin, Greek, French, Italian, Spanish, and Hebrew. As his student, 
Devere would have been expected to learn these languages, and William Shakespeare's plays show knowledge of these languages as well. Thomas Smith also studied law very closely, and Devere would have done so as well. Shakespeare's scholars believe that the author either studied or worked in law for some time based on his intimate knowledge of the profession. With the help of his tutor, Devere would have learned more about law by the age of 10 than some learn in college. Perfect for a future playwright, but not much of a childhood. Devere would have had a lonely upbringing in the family home at Castle Headingham, located in Essex. His only sister was nine years his senior, and he was the only child in the castle. According to Shakespeare by another name, however, Devere's father was the patron of the acting troupe, the Earl of Oxford's men. During the winter months when they were unable to tour, it was likely they stayed in Castle Headingham, entertaining the family, including young Edward Devere. Edward's father died at Castle Headingham in 1562 when Edward was only 12 years old. Edward became the 17th Earl of Oxford and also, as was tradition, a ward of the Queen. He was sent to live with William Cecil, who later became Lord Burley. History remembers Cecil as the polarizing right-hand man to Elizabeth I. De Vere's schooling did not end when he moved in with Cecil. According to Shakespeare by another name, his daily schedule started at 7.30 a.m. with dancing and included subjects such as Latin, French, and exercises with his pen. Well then, in 1564, De Vere, like Marlowe, attended Cambridge University. A fellow scholar named Gabriel Harvey praised De Vere's writing. Witness how greatly thou dost excel in letters, Thine eyes flash fire, thy countenance shakes a spear. An interesting mention of shakes a spear there, as well as proof that De Vere was a talented writer. But the responsibilities of De Vere's station interrupted his life of scholarship. He was expected to make a suitable marriage and sire an heir, or preferably several. At this time, Queen Elizabeth had not named an heir of her own, and Edward de Vere was now the highest-ranking royal at court, which is perhaps why Cecil seized the opportunity to arrange a marriage between de Vere and his daughter, Anne Cecil. No doubt he hoped de Vere would one day be king. The wedding took place in 1571, when de Vere was 20 years old. But De Vere and Anne Cecil were a poor match, and he seemed to have his heart set on another. He was often seen at court flirting with Queen Elizabeth, and the flirtation appeared to be mutual. In fact, De Vere became so dissatisfied with his married status that he claimed he and Anne had never consummated the marriage, and thus were eligible for an annulment. An annulment that would leave De Vere free to marry the Queen of England. Coming up, we'll look at the idea that De Vere and Queen Elizabeth had a child out of wedlock and the tantalizing role their child plays in the story of William Shakespeare. Now, back to the story. 
De Vere was married to Anne Cecil in 1571, but it wasn't long before he started publicizing the fact that they had never consummated their relationship. This made them eligible for an annulment and spurred on rumors that he and Queen Elizabeth I were having a love affair. A love affair that may have led to the birth of a son. There is a conspiracy called the Prince Tudor Theory, that claims Queen Elizabeth and de Vere had a child together out of wedlock somewhere around 1574. This theory first appeared in Percy Allen's 1932 book, The Life Story of William de Vere. The purported child was Henry Risley, 3rd Earl of Southampton, the man to whom William Shakespeare dedicated his sonnets. The evidence for this side conspiracy is thin. In 1601, Risley was sentenced to death for his part in a conspiracy to seize the British throne from the Queen. But Queen Elizabeth mysteriously commuted his sentence. According to the film Anonymous, this was because de Vere pleaded with her to save their son's life. But if we presume that Risley was the secret love child of de Vere and Queen Elizabeth, and de Vere was William Shakespeare... It puts an interesting spin on Shakespeare's sonnets. Most of the sonnets are addressed to an unnamed fair youth, who, based on the dedication, is presumed to be Risley. It's generally assumed that the fair youth was Shakespeare's patron or lover, but according to this theory, the connection could have been a bit different. Shakespeare, a.k.a. De Vere, was writing to his son. Some of the poems give fatherly advice, urging the youth to get married and have children. If the author was de Vere and Risley was his secret son, this theory would be a perfect fit. Less convincing is the fact that many of the fair youth sonnets are romantic in nature. It would be somewhat strange for de Vere to write love poems to his own son. But we might find better evidence in some of Shakespeare's later works, particularly those that involve international travel. In 1575, de Vere spent a full year traveling around Europe, including across Italy. Many of Shakespeare's plays give what read like first-hand accounts of the places de Vere visited. This is in stark contrast to William of Stratford, who left behind no records of any travels beyond London. Oxfordians argue that many of Shakespeare's plays, in fact, read like de Vere autobiographies. This is especially true of de Vere's run-in with pirates. According to Shakespeare by another name, de Vere was in Denmark when pirates took over his ship. They robbed him of everything, including the clothes off his back, stripping him naked. This very scene appears in Hamlet. It's possible that William of Stratford heard the story and lifted the details for his play. Or maybe the real William Shakespeare experienced the event himself. De Vere's wild adventures didn't end with pirates, and eventually he would fall out of grace with most at court as a result, including Queen Elizabeth. This might explain why he had to hide the authorship of his plays. Without the favor of the queen, writing politically charged pieces could be a dangerous pastime. And we do know for a fact that de Vere was writing during this time. 
Some of his poetry still survives. There are also hints from his contemporaries that he may have written much more than the work he signed. After the poem Venus and Adonis came out, ostensibly by William Shakespeare, there was a review from a fellow poet saying that the author lives in the shadows in disgrace, in purple robes disdained. At this time, purple was the color of royalty. Could this poet be speaking of De Vere? There's no way to say for sure, but it does make a tantalizing case for Oxfordians. If De Vere was known to be the author of Shakespeare's work, though, then why was all the credit given to William of Stratford? The answer could very well be that it was exactly what De Vere wanted, and maybe even paid for people to believe. According to the film Anonymous, De Vere originally asked Ben Jonson to put his name on the plays De Vere had written. Ben Jonson was reluctant to do so, but he would be able to help him in another way. He could convince William of Stratford, an actor for the Lord Chamberlain's men, to lend his name. William of Stratford was paid handsomely, and De Vere could stop writing anonymous plays. Remember, before Venus and Adonis, Shakespeare's works left the author line blank. If Queen Elizabeth I knew of this plot, well, she didn't seem to mind. According to Shakespeare by another name, in an unprecedented act, she gave De Vere an unexplained yearly stipend of 1,000 pounds. This would come out to around $5 million in today's money. De Vere was famously bad with money, often having to sell off his family's many estates. Yet the queen entrusted him with a mighty sum for no reason whatsoever. It's not impossible to say that the queen herself was the hidden patron of William Shakespeare. This stipend was given to De Vere until his death in 1604 a year that is also important to the Oxfordian theory, or at least to its critics. 1604 was seven years before the death of William of Stratford, and while Shakespeare's plays started coming out at a slower pace during those seven years, about one per year, they did continue to come out. Oxfordians have an explanation for this. They believe that these late plays were written by De Vere prior to his death and then entrusted to Ben Jonson, who gradually released them. They also point out that Shakespeare is famous for satirizing current events, and according to the Shakespeare Authorship Trust, no new current events were cited or satirized in the plays published after 1604. Oxfordians also point out that the first folio, or post-mortem compendium of Shakespeare's works, was dedicated to De Vere's own son-in-law, Philip Herbert, 4th Earl of Pembroke and 1st Earl of Montgomery, which suggests that he gave money for the project, which would mean De Vere's own family helped finance the publishing of Shakespeare's plays. Most intriguing to me are the clues left behind by De Vere's contemporaries, including the Shakespeare quote and the review of Shakespeare's works claiming that the true author lives in the shadows in disgrace, in purple robes disdained. The pirate raid that is later shown in Hamlet is also compelling. However, De Vere was an important enough man that I'm sure all of England had heard that story. 
Anyone could have lifted the details of Devere's experience and dramatized them. But who better to tell the story than Devere? It's also worth noting two Shakespeare dedications, the one to Devere's rumored son, the Earl of Southampton, and the other in the first folio to Devere's son-in-law. Why would Devere's family support the publishing of Shakespeare's work if Devere wasn't the author? Maybe because, like the rest of London, they were fans of the plays. Well, the main problem with this theory is that Devere died while new Shakespeare works were still being published. As far as likelihood, we're willing to give it a 6 out of 10. We do still have one more conspiracy theory to cover, though. The multiple authors theory. This is the combo platter of the William Shakespeare conspiracies. It involves a little bit of everyone. Well, this theory argues that several authors, led by Francis Bacon, worked together to write the prolific works of Shakespeare. This kind of group partnership would have been beneficial for several reasons. The first reason is indicative of the time. Writers wanted to shield themselves from royal prosecution. Though Queen Elizabeth I was a theater lover, more than one unfortunate soul found themselves in the tower for what they wrote during her reign. These authors could have been working to save their own titles, or perhaps even lives, by keeping their true names hidden. The second reason, according to the Shakespeare Authorship Trust, is money. It is much quicker for multiple writers to put out one piece of work together and split the profits. This may account for the sheer number of plays and sonnets that William Shakespeare wrote in his, or their, lifetime. But it will take more research to discover who those writers were. In 1857, Delia Bacon wrote the book The Philosophy of the Plays of Shakespeare Unfolded. She proposes that the true author of Shakespeare's works was Francis Bacon. Well, Francis Bacon is well known to history, but not as a playwright. He was a scientist, and his work in philosophy is still highly regarded to this day. He did, however, write outside of the scientific realm. In 1584, he penned a letter of advice to Queen Elizabeth, a lengthy essay which included the line... It is true that the whole kingdom hath cast their eye upon you as the new rising star, and no man thinks his business can prosper at court unless he hath you for his good angel. This quote is an important glimpse at Bacon's talent as a writer, and adding to the conspiracy, he also led a literary society. Using the membership roster of the literary society, Theorists have created a shortlist of potential co-authors for this group authorship theory. On the list are all of the men we have spoken about today. William of Stratford, Christopher Marlowe, and Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford. Also often included are Francis Beaumont, Ben Johnson, John Fletcher, Mary Sidney Herbert, Thomas Nash, and countless others, including... Queen Elizabeth herself. Out of this long list of names, several are officially considered collaborators of William Shakespeare. These include John Fletcher and, as of 2016, Christopher Marlowe, whose name is now printed alongside Shakespeare's on three plays. 
These known co-authorships point towards the fact that playwrights often work together in the Elizabethan era, which means that it can be notoriously difficult to figure out exactly who worked on which plays. Historians who believe the multiple authorship conspiracy have come up with various systems to decide who wrote what. Such systems include looking at the spelling of names and other words, comparing imagery, counting words that writers favored, and the use of rhyming couplets versus blank verse. Well, there is also another tool that is used to sift through the texts, ciphers. It was Samuel Morris who first presented the idea of hidden codes throughout the plays that could be found with a cipher. According to the BBC in the 1800s, Samuel Morris told Delia Bacon that Shakespeare may have left clues or codes in his writing. These codes would spell out the name of the true author or authors of the works. Delia did not look for the codes, but another theorist took up the charge. In the early 1900s, scholar Orville Ward Owens began the process. He invented a large cipher wheel and used it to find codes that were hidden throughout the plays. He claimed that by deciphering the codes, he found the location of a box, a box that had been hidden by Francis Bacon at the bottom of the Wye River. Owens believed that in this box, he would find William Shakespeare's manuscripts in the author's own handwriting. He strongly believed these manuscripts would prove that Francis Bacon was the lead author. And Owens wasn't the only one interested. His work garnered national attention. According to the New York Times, Owens started his search for this box in 1909. In 1911, the Times sent a journalist to see what progress had been made. Owens had nothing. He told the reporter he was afraid Bacon had moved the box or someone else had already found it. In the end, the box was never found, leaving Owens with very little credibility. Unfortunately, Delia Bacon was similarly discredited by the time of her death. After her book came out, she was widely regarded as a crackpot. Delia Bacon died in 1859 in Hartford, Connecticut, Asylum. Believers of Delia and Owen's group writer theory have not given up, however. They are still looking for codes left behind within the plays. They are convinced that Francis Bacon, William of Stratford, Christopher Marlowe, and Edward de Vere were all involved in the conspiracy. But their search for proof hasn't made much progress since the days of Delia and Owens. This theory simply doesn't hold much water. It does seem entirely possible that William Shakespeare collaborated with other playwrights, but there's little evidence that such collaboration was as extensive as the group writer theorists believe. We give this theory a 2 out of 10. Well, this brings us to the end of our William Shakespeare conspiracies, a set of theories that date back centuries and continue to intrigue people to this very day. The cornerstone of this conspiracy is not the information we have, but the lack of it. It is strange just how little we know about William of Stratford, but it seems like a jump to say this means he wasn't William Shakespeare. At best, these conspiracies are a fun look at some historical oddities. At worst, 
it could be considered classist. The root of the issue seems to be disbelief that a poor boy raised by illiterate parents could rise to become the world's most beloved playwright. Yeah, that was my exact feeling. I'm not saying I'm fully swayed, but if I believe any of the conspiracies, it's the Edward de Vere theory. There are parts of de Vere's story that line up so closely with who William Shakespeare was and what he wrote about. For the sake of being a devil's advocate, I will stand by the Oxfordian theory. It looks like we'll have to agree to disagree. Now, what we can agree on is that William Shakespeare is still a cultural touchstone. Not only are his plays still being performed across the globe, you can find his likeness on nearly any product. You can purchase anything from William Shakespeare socks to a William Shakespeare stuffed animal. Tours of Stratford-upon-Avon are still a booming business, and all of this fanfare is for a man who has been dead for 400 years. The very idea that we are celebrating the wrong man could shake the planet which is perhaps why the conspiracy theories continue to abound. Another reason for the fascination with Shakespeare conspiracies could be that neither the official story nor the theories have a rock-solid case. As we've said before, the root of all the Shakespeare conspiracies is a lack of information. Regardless of the man behind the plays, however, at least one thing is irrefutable, the talent of Shakespeare's pen. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. And you can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all their podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories is written by Claire Linich and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 